Thank y'all so much. Well, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 11. Appreciate Pastor Mike filling in for me last week as I was away, and it's good to be back. I'm gonna be back in the air this week, back to New Mexico, doing a funeral on Thursday, but uh, should be around here pretty much all week other than that, and it's just great to be back with you. We are looking at these psalm and, psalms and one of the shortest and most brief psalms in all the Bible is Psalm number 11. I'm gonna invite you to open your Bibles there and let your, your, those pages fall open to Psalm number 11. And as you're finding that, we wanna welcome those that are streaming live with us today uh, and maybe others that'll be watching a little later but through the podcast and we're just so thankful that so many are able to tune in in a digital way I just can't tell you how many people have talked talk to me about, hey, we've, we're, we're watching. And so that means a lot uh, that you're connected in that way. And uh, so great to have so many of you back today. And man, we've, we've waited a long time to see a number of you and it's just great to have you here. All of us at some time in our lives, every single one of us come to that place in our life, well, where we just wanna run from it all. I mean, uh, we're not talking about one of the Psalms that we've looked at in previous days where there's despair. We're not talking today about those moments where there's difficult days. We're talking about a moment for the Psalmist that he said, you know what, that's it. His cup had, was brimful and now running over and he was at the place of making a big strategic decision. And today, that's what I want to speak into your heart just directly, forthrightly today because every one of us can connect with this feeling. At some point and in some dimension of our life as we go through it, the ebb and flow of it, we all reach that point, that breaking point at some point that say, hey, that's it. And we want to run away. We just want to flee. We want to quit. We want to be done with it. We've had enough. How much misery can you take? How much heartache can you take? How much uh, heartbreak can you take? And it's obvious in these little small seven verses that pack significant punch that David had come to that particular place in his life. And let me tell you something. If you're here today and you think, well, there's not that, I mean, what a topic. There's not that many people that really run away from things. Hey, uh, man, you're mistaken. There are so many in our society that are on the run. We know that teenagers, adolescent runaway-ism, if you will, has been rampant in America for the better part of 45 or 50 years now in our culture. In fact, every 24 seconds, there's a teen that runs away. And you know what's really frightening about this? Just as a side note, these teen runaways and looking at the statistics of those, 46% of them say that their parents encourage them to run away. Now let that soak in for just a moment. And if that's not a staggering statistic, you back it up with the fact that 86% of all runaway teens say, you know, the truth is we're a lot safer in a different shelter, even if it's on the streets than we were in our own home. We face, le we face far less risk of abuse on the run than we did in our own homes. Students are on the run. 
men are on the run, especially fathers in our society. We know that there's 10.3 million, did you get that? 10.3 million women in America alone that are rearing children without any male figure in the home. Now think about that for just a moment. One out of four fathers in our society in America today say that they see their children on the average of once a month. One out of five father figures, not figures, but fathers in America, one out of five, that's 20% say they haven't seen their child or children in the past year. I, I would just submit to you, as we've just walked through the Tony Evans study with our men, there are a lot of men on the run. And we could go on and on. There's a lot of women on the run. So much has been dumped on you. And at some point, your cup will brimming over. And many, many women in our society are just saying, you know, that's it. We, we're walking away. We're running away from this. And we know that there's pressures and there's devastating news. And there's those moments even when we're embarrassed and when we come to Psalm 11, you've got to understand from a historical study, if we were to break David's life down, his early young adult life, it really would break down into three little prongs. There would be shepherding days that David spent out on the farm uh, where he took care of the sheep. We know there was a momentous occasion during those shepherding days. We know he got pretty, let's see, what would the East Texas colloquialism be? He, he, he was pretty doggone good with the sling. We also know there were musician days. We know his instrument of choice was the harp, where he would sing and play for a wicked king. But we also know that there were days in young adult life that David was on the run from cave to cave, from excursion and escape, one after another, running for his life. Now, when you look in Psalm 11, and we're gonna read the entire Psalm in just a moment, if you'll just take a quick gander at verse number one, you see it's obvious by the end of verse number one that David has been prompted. He has been encouraged to do one single thing to end all of his problems, and that is, David, run. Man, grab your robe around you, tuck it in your sash, and man, you get out of Dodge. Just run from all these problems. Run from all the dangers. Run from a crazy world and a chaotic world. Run from these issues that are bearing down and they're heavy on your heart. And if you'll just run, that will be the solution. In fact, as we read verse one, we see that evidently David uses this element of the bird saying, hey, I, I guess that's what they think I am as a bird. I can just fly away from all my problems. So today, here's what I'm gonna invite you to do as we begin reading this psalm. In just a moment, I'm gonna give, give you three very important little walkaways that will help all of us in the midst of these moments and times when we come to this place in our life where we say, you know what, I'm just getting out of here. I'm running from it, I'm done with it. It, it, it really goes beyond quint, quitting and staying in one place. It is total abandonment. And before you sit up there in those pews today and maybe have a little pious spirit maybe tucked away in some hearts, 
well, I would never do that. Let me tell you something. You don't know what you would do if you were put under enough pressure. If you're here today and you would say, I would never run away. I really feel sorry for your realistic look at who you are. Because under enough excruciating pain and enough pressure, my friends, you will be very surprised at what you will do. So let's read together today from the counsel of the word of God, Psalm 11. And here's what God's word says. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows to the upright in heart. When the, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. And boy, that's a, in the NIV, that's a huge, huge word there for us. Everyone on earth, his eyes examine them. And the Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. And then in verse five, uh, verse seven, the final verse, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice and the upright will see his face. Quickly, would you jot down these three truths? I think they're significant or I wouldn't be sharing them with you today. It would not be the center point of our time of worship. God's word would not be standing here at the very center. Not as in some churches do where we tuck it on some spiral stairway over against the wall in the corner. But God's word here in the centrality of our worship, three things from God's word that I think will help us and speak life application into our lives as we continue these momentous moments. As the psalmist says, here's some lyrics for our lives. Jot down, first of all, that David, that in, in his heart, there's a decision that is made. This whole quitting, this whole running, this whole fleeing from our problems, really, I think, stems in this important stake as we take the mallet of God's word and begin to penetrate into these problems, we see that David made a decision. A decision is made. Now, it becomes very apparent, look down in verse two, that the hostility of the wicked is really weighing on him, isn't it? Go back to verse number two. He says, for look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings, and they shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. Now, most scholars would suggest here, and I happen to agree in, 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 and would be in this same camp from a, from a theological standpoint, I don't think David's talking about physical arrows. I don't think David's saying, hey, they're, they're bending their bows. They are tightening the string. They're taking these arrows and they're going to... I don't think it was so much a physical onslaught as it was a verbal onslaught. More than likely, it was the, these poisonous arrows of speech. And we know that so often hostility hits us undercover. So many times the enemies, they're all about hanging out in the shadows 
attempting to undermine from a distance. Most of the time because they don't have courage to face you face to face. And David was up to here with that. Around him there were enemies. In the culture that he lived in, there was chaos and confusion. And so David just said, hey, when it comes to the hostilities around me, I see it, I recognize it, and there's no doubt that is weighing heavy on his heart. But look in verse number three, he says, and what do we do when the foundations are being destroyed? We see immediately that David not only is wrestling with these hostilities of the wicked, but the perplexities of God's people. The very people that are worshipers of Jehovah, now they're being shaken and the foundation of God's word is being completely extracted from culture, or at least that's how David senses it or, or he feels that it's that way. He says, what can the righteous do in form of a question? One of the paraphrases, I really don't remember, I believe it was the Living Bible, paraphrases verse number three this way, the bottom has dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. Now, you know me well enough now to know right here, I gotta be very careful because I could take a turn here and go off on any number of subjects. We have some big foundational problems in our nation. Big. We have difficulties right now in our nation, primarily because, and by the way, this word foundation that's given to us right here in verse number three, that word, that, that word in, in the Hebrew language means a settled order of things. We get kind of a derivative, rudimentary, elementary, uh, moral things, foundational things. And I'll just say this and move on. And go ahead and give me a baby applause for moving on. But hey, listen to me. When you put any nation out to sea without any standard or moral compass, it's not going to be good. And it's amazing to me that we know we have a God that created us. God creates man. God puts in his heart the desire for community. God gives man a roadmap to how to administer his covenant in community as what we know as a society. I don't know how bright you have to be to know that when we throw out the roadmap, there are going to be some deep, deep, challenging moments. And that's where we are. The truths of the Bible are the only adequate guide for foundational principles of our society. Now we're trying to reinvent marriage we're trying to reinvent who we were created to be, man, woman. We're trying to make all kinds of hybrid, hybrid, man-made gender concepts going on now. We've redefined what life is. And I'm just asking you with common sense, how's that working out for us? God created us. 
God placed in us a need for community. He gave us a roadmap for how society is to function. Very simple. But when you and I get to the point where we don't know right from wrong, when you and I come to a place in our culture that there's no standards, we're searching, now is that right or is that wrong? I was at a graduation Friday night and it was interesting. You know, I guess we've, I guess we've come a long way I, and, and I'm getting old and I know that and, and things aren't gonna stay like they were in the 70s and 80s. And for some of you, they're not gonna stay like they were in the 40s and 50s and we could go on and on. Oh, I'm sorry, for the, the 20s and 30s for a few of you. But you know, there was a day in time that, you know, where your robe cut off, where people could see that there was a standard. Now, you, you're gonna wear dark shoes. Okay. Why? Because everybody can see that. I watched a young man walk across the stage in a big coliseum Friday night, not here in our area, but in another part of the state. And he had the muddiest cowboy boots on and had his spurs on. <laughs> now, I thought that was really cool. But I don't think my wife thought it was too cool. You know, maybe we just live in a day and time there and there really no standards. And David is saying, man, culture around me, there's hostilities from the enemies. And what do you do when there's a complete breakdown of biblical authority, right from wrong and standards? And, and David says, I'll tell you what people are telling me to do as a follower of Yahweh, of God, to run, to get out of this situation, to isolate myself. I loved what Nehemiah said when he was faced in his homeland where he was from. He looked back to his homeland. He knew he had to go and help rebuild that wall. And Nehemiah made this incredible statement. Should such a man as I flee? What are we to do in these kind of moments? I remind you that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And what did David do? Here's the decision. Go back to verse one. Very simple. Very short, concise phrase. David began Psalm 11 by just these six or seven words. In the Lord, I take refuge. Our King James translates it this way. In Jehovah, I take refuge. You see, you and I are not like animals, we are not like animals. An animal, when they're faced with all kinds of difficulties, they really resort to one of two things. It's their only two options. They can have flight or they can fight. That's their only two options as an animal. Hey, we can engage and either we'll survive and be the victor and move on with our life or we'll, we'll die there or we can run. We can run away. But you see, as believers, as people as created beings of God. We're not created uh, uh, in some animal kingdom. There's a third option for us. Do you see that right here? David says the third option is not fight or flight, but faith. I take refuge. I run into the arms of Jehovah. What was it, six weeks ago? We looked at the 46th Psalm. You remember that incredible first verse of Psalm 46? God is our refuge, he's our strength, he's our ever-present, what, help in time of need. So there it is, 
simple as it is, the starting point of how we are able to overcome these emotions to run away. A decision was made. But I want you to jot this second thing down. It's it's just as significant. A second thing I want you to jot down is there's a discovery that's going to be revealed. There's a discovery here here that David is going to reveal to us. Go down and look at verse number four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Incredible statements here. David recognizes and discovers, you know what? I'm going to look to heaven. It's a whole different perspective. You know, as Christians, have you ever thought about this? As Christians, we should be operating under a different perspective of things. Becky and I just moved into our new little farm two days ago. And I'm learning something about now living out on a rural road in the middle of nowhere. I'm learning a whole new dimension of litter. I'm shocked over these first two or three mornings that I get up at my new residence when I pull out of my driveway through my gate, I can't believe the things that I have found on my property next to the road. A bag of dirty diapers, three whiskey bottles, several Budweiser cans, unfortunately nothing in them. And I'm starting to learn something. There's some people that don't have the same perspective about litter that I do. You know, when Becky and I have trash in our vehicle, man, we look around, most of the time we throw it down in the floorboard temporarily, but, you know, some of you have the little litter, y'all have a little trash sack there, and Becky does a pretty good job of that, we gathered up. And then at the appropriate time, I mean, we wouldn't think about driving down a real road and just throwing our trash out on somebody else's property. We wouldn't even think about that. Why? Because our perspective is we want to try to treat people like we would want people to treat us. I mean, there's something inborn now in this transformational state with a relationship and covenant with Christ that, hey, that's what Jesus would do. He, I mean, he wouldn't do that to somebody else, so I shouldn't do that. We were at that graduation I mentioned a couple days ago, and uh, this beautiful young lady that we went to see graduate, man, she's so precious. Anyway, she was talking about after graduation things. I, I didn't know they had all that stuff. I said, I knew there were after prom activities, But no, she says, oh no, we'll be up all night. And she says, I'm going with a big group. And I said, Georgie, that's awesome. I said, you know, when Amber was growing up, we were into the group dating things. And and, and she looked at me and she said, "You, you know, Uncle Mike, now, you know, my only brother died, but she calls me uncle. And she says, you know, I... I belong to someone much greater than anyone here on planet earth. And it moved me. Big difference in that perspective. And the perspective of someone looking to get themselves in a bad position out there in darkness. You see, our perspective is different. Our perspective is different about finances. As believers, we operate differently than the world does. We know that we're to set aside a tenth of what we have. That's the Lord's. And if we don't provide that and give that back to him, hey, we're robbing God. We know that. 
And so others would go into it outside of covenant with God by saying, "What? hey, this is all mine. I'm gonna spend it all. It's all for me. The believer says, no, 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 no. No, 90% can be used for what you choose to use it for. But these 10%, hey, it's all God's anyway. He gave it to you. You gotta protect that and guard that and return that to his work and his kingdom. It's a different perspective. Thursday is, I think I'll take part in funeral number 11 in the last 23 days. It's different when you walk into a church, regardless of what state it is. Death to someone outside of Christ is much different than someone in Christ. The perspective is different. And you see, where you and I look during our problems makes all the difference. You know, after all, we know the word anthropos. We have the study of man, anthropology. Anthropos means up-looking one, upright one, because God has given us a special ability to look up to God. You've never seen a monkey on his knees praying. You've never seen a giraffe singing Amazing Grace. We have instilled in us a special spiritual dimension did you notice what David said? Look at it again. He says, there's God, there's his perspective. He says, there, there's the Lord. And where is he of all places? He's on his holy temple and the Lord is on his heavenly throne. David's problems now, as he begins to look upward, he realizes God's throne has never been shaken and never will. God's throne is not even slightly damaged. I hear people all the time, well, America's doomed for ruin. I hear others that tell me, well, we're getting close to the end. The rapture is, hey, and certainly ruin is an option because the Bible says the Antichrist will emerge. And man, I'm telling you, he will, do, he will bring chaos to this globe. And it certainly is true that, that maybe we are closer than, well, we certainly are closer than we've ever been before to the rapture the very church being taken out. We understand that. And there'll be a time that the devil does such a work here, we'll all be looking for the exit signs. But I'm telling you, as we live life, I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the upper taker. I'm not looking for the clods of life, I'm looking up in the clouds because Jesus Christ, he's the blessed hope of the children of God and his return. But there's another option that we many times don't even think about. It may not end up being ruined in the next few years or rapture in the next few years, but God may bring revival. He may bring a revival to America. I'm talking about a oh, sin-killing, devil-defeating, society-purifying revival that when the Holy Spirit gets involved, incredible things begin to happen. Now, I want you to see this discovery. Look at the end of verse four. He says, he observes everyone on earth and his eyes examine them. There's David's discovery. In the midst of his problems, David realizes, hey, this thing didn't catch God off guard. 
God has seen it coming. He knew about it from the very beginning. He sees everyone, did you notice that? Composite term, everyone, good, evil, he sees it all. And David is able to put that in the balance when he's trying to decide what he's gonna do, run away or to stay and fight for the kingdom of God. By the way, kind of an interesting twist here. I know some of you, I get all kinds of emails. Well, you wander off into word studies, but it's interesting to me that the King James doesn't translate this eyes. The King James translate this, this, this Hebrew phrase as eyelids. And, and, and I just mentioned to you that because the Hebrew word here means the restricting or narrowing of the eye. See, East, I have to think about which state I'm in. Uh, hey, 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 East Texas term, squinting. Have you ever tried to thread an eye, the, some thread through the eye of a needle? For me, it's impossible now without my glasses. And even with my glasses, still challenging. But have you ever looked at something, examined it up close and you kind of start to squint or you pull it away and, and, and you can tell it's a, I mean, it's a real act of, of, of labor and love there to try to find out exactly what you're looking at. That's, that's the termo, uh, terminology that's used to scrutinize. God sees all the things. David takes great consolation in knowing, even though he's going through difficult times, nothing is happening without God's knowledge. You remember what the Proverbs, the, the writer of Proverbs said? What was it, 15.3, I believe? That incredible statement, the eyes of the Lord are where they are in all places, beholding, King James, good and evil. Remember Hebrews 4? Chapter 13, nothing is hidden from God. Everything's open, it's naked and exposed before him. Quickly, look, he goes on to kind of give us a breakdown. Look in verse five. He says, he says God's eyes are on the righteous. God examines the righteous. Do you see that statement? He examines the, I mean, hey, in, in this old world, God is gonna put us to the test. Before you run away, stop to think, God may be putting you to the test. He did that to Abram, to Abraham. In this whole world, he said, hey, are you really? Yeah, I'm a follower. I believe in you, God. I'm a Jehovah transformed man. And he says, well, you've waited so long for this son. Let's just see how much you love me. Will you take the life of Isaac, your son, do you love me that much? See, life is a proving ground for God's people. When you feel like running away, don't run away. This is proving ground for us. Running away is nothing more than a permanent solution to a temporary problem. That's all running away is. A permanent solution to temporary problems. But did you notice something else there? At the end of verse number five, he says, not just the righteous, but out of the wicked, those who love violence and those that, 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 that he hates with a passion, his eyes are also on the unrighteous. To say that God hates 
is absolutely correct. He doesn't hate people. He hates their choices, their sin. Sin hurts creation. Sin mars the opportunity for you and I to discover full and potential capacity of our lives. Now, our time is gone. So let me just show you this third and final thing. It's so important. Did you, did you get those first two? A decision was made. And just a simple statement, he took refuge in God. And then we talked about the discovery that was revealed here. Hey, this didn't catch God off guard. God sees all things. He's aware of all things, the righteous, the unrighteous, anything that you can imagine, God knows. There's nothing that he does not know. So therefore, God knows my situation, my plight, my difficulties, my heartbreaks. And then look at this third thing. There's a declaration now that's going to be asserted. A declaration that's going to be asserted. And I I just mention it to you. Look in verse number seven. The Bible says again, for the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Isn't it wonderful that David is right on target theologically. Our God is righteous. You remember what Ezra said in Ezra 9:15, "The Lord God of Israel, you are righteous." Our Bible teaches us that the Lord does righteously. In Genesis, incredible statement about our God, "Shall not the judge of the earth do right?" Of course he will. Our God loves good and righteousness. And so David is clinging to that. God has done something in the last four or five days in my personal walk with him that I just want to convey to you. I don't know how many hours that I spend studying the Bible, reading the Bible, preparing, daily devotional, sermon prep, whatever it may be, funeral prep in many cases. But for some reason, I had never put an Old Testament look with a New Testament look in terms of us seeing God. I share that with you because this last phrase in verse number seven is, is, is really one of the most staggering statements in all the Bible. Look at it again. The upright will see his face. I went all the way back to Moses. And, you know, when it comes to difficult days, old Mo could teach us a thing or two. You talk about pressure. You talk about people that turned on him, gave him difficult, I mean, made life miserable. And Moses asked God one time, he says, God, I just want to see you. God, I just want to see your glory. That's how he couched it out out of, of, of those first five books of the Bible. Moses didn't say, I want to look at you in the face. He says, I want to see your countenance. I want to see your glory. Otherwise, uh, he was asked, can I look at you? And you remember God says, well, okay, but not completely. 
God says, I want you to go hide in that crack of the rock, the cleft of the rock. And I want you to hide your face as I pass by directly. And then you can look as I pass by and you're gonna just get to see a portion of my glory. But Moses, you can't look at my face because you'll die. But you know, I'd never couch those things together. When I come to the New Testament, you have those moments when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will what? They will see God. You come to these points, John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, listen to this staggering statement. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Listen, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. You get over there to Revelation, the last of the last. Revelation 22, 4 says this, and they will see his face. David, out of a desperate heart, was able to somehow capitalize on an important decision that was made. He says, man, maybe I do need to fly away like a bird. Maybe I need to run away. But you, you, you know what? I'm just going to run not away, but to. I'm gonna run to the arms of my God. And then he coupled that with this discovery that you know what? This has not caught caught God off guard. And and I know that God sees all people, the righteous, the unrighteous, and he sees me and he knows my situation. And out of that, he knows that there's gonna be a time that he's gonna be able to see the face of Jesus. Wow. I just submit to you today that when life circumstances become bigger than you are, you only have two choices. You may have some big bucks today, you may have some big degrees today, but I'm telling you, life will bring you to your knees in just a short time. Choice number one, run. Or choice number two, ask for help. Isn't it interesting that David says, in the end, when all this passes away, I'm gonna see his face. One of my favorite little buddies in all the world, and I have several of them, is a guy by the name of Britton Thomas. Britton came bursting into my office this morning. Britton don't knock. Britton came in and says, I wore my boots. I said, bring them over here and let me see them, big man. Where's your spurs? What? (laughs) And he says, look, I got my cowboy belt on. And I said, you told me last night, Big Britain, you're gonna wear it. And I did. I told mama, I wanted to wear my boots and my belt. Just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike got to the picnic late 
had a little mud problem up there at the flying feathers. And so when I walked under that pavilion, I was kind of in a hurry and I looked down and there was my buddy, Britton Thomas. But he didn't see me. So I reached over to Big Brit. I grabbed him from the back. He started kicking. I was prepared. I was prepared. I grabbed him like this. And then I pulled him into me and I hugged up. He was, he was trying to turn around, but I was squeezing him too hard. And so I whispered, Britton, do you know who this is? No, let me down. And I said, feel my face and tell me who this is. When he grabbed a hold of my nose. <laughs> I said, that's my nose. Do you know who it is? No. I said, can you feel my ears? He reached back. You have big ears, he said. Big ears. And he said, who is this? So I turned him around. And he said, Pastor. I just want to share with you. Man, my heart's been broken these last several weeks, like many of yours. I'm tired of funerals. I'm tired of bad, bad diagnoses. Tired of ICUs. Tired of oncology. I'm sick of it. But knowing that one day, I'm not gonna have to grope around from this world in some darkness to determine who I'm gonna be seeing. But there's gonna be a moment when you and I as followers of Christ are gonna be able to distinguish very clearly and look into the face of Jesus. Not a partial, but the real thing. Life is worth fighting on. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these moments today. We start off by thanking you for a great day. We are better together. Thank you for bringing so many of those that have been missing back to our fellowship today. Man, it's been a tough 14, 15, 16 months. But Father, many are back I'm so thankful for that. Father, we thank you for the inspiring music today, how you've blessed our hearts. Father, we thank you that the centrality of your word speaks right into the very heart of the challenges, the difficulties that we walk through and we face. We are learning the hard way that life so often provides the test that you want to see accomplished in our lives so that we'll be more like you. But Father, at the end, the scripture dangles the ultimate reward for us. We're going to be able to see you to be with you, to worship and exalt you in person. 
And Father, because of that, our motivation to fight on is alive and well. The blessed hope of your return when we can see you resonates deeply in our heart. So Father, as we ponder those two choices today, maybe there are those that have come to this assembly with heavy hearts, facing difficult and dark days. And Father, when we're at that point in our life, we have but yet two choices to quit and run away, or to ask for help. And Father, there's no greater help than we do just as David did. We seek refuge in the middle of who you are. We run to you. And when we do that in our brokenness, you embrace us. You sustain us. You lift us and encourage us and elevate us. It's in that moment of our surrender that you do your greatest work. Father, is there someone here that has never given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ? They come in their brokenness today. They come in their sin today looking to you for life ahead. Confessing that sin, surrendering to the very faith walk in you, Father, I pray that there be someone here today that has never trusted you. That the Holy Spirit would speak to their heart and bring salvation to them through you as you said, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.